Welcome to the remnant service. We are the remnant. All of our brothers and sisters and friends have left us and gone to the beach. And we are what is left. And we're not bitter. We're happy to be here. Amen? Oh, man. The first service wasn't at all. They, they really weren't. It was, it was so much better than the first service. I will try to be better than I was in the first service. I'm having a bad word day. Anybody ever just have bad word days, can't get the words to line up right? I'm having one of those, so maybe be a little patient with me today. Hey, before we jump into our big truth, I, I want to give us a little bit of a philosophical question. We're walking through our new summer series. We're talking about the story, and we're in this section on creation. Last week, we, we paused and we realized that God is the creator. He is the author and the subject of all of creation. It's all about him. And as we kind of get into this week, we're going to talk about how we are made in the image of God. But first, I, I got a philosophical question, all right? Here's the question. What is the value, the value of the creation? What more specifically, is our value, and how is it determined? All right, now this is a this is kind of a in the clouds kind of a thought, and some of you are going, of course, Daniel, you're floating around in the clouds. I know what you're thinking, but I'm in pretty good company this time. David asked this question. It's a biblical question. He asked in Psalm chapter eight, verse three, "When I look at your heavens." And the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? In the vastness of all of creation, all the universe, everything, every particle to every planet, who are we? In the evidence of a supreme being that sits outside of time, space, and matter and can just speak things into existence. Who are we? It's a pretty deep question. And we live today in a world where there are many who have said in their heart there is no God. And the worldview has followed this thought. They see creation void of a creator and as a result they adopt a view that we live essentially in a self-ruled society all at peer level and as a result one of the things that happens is we are a collection of just our individual choices meaning organizations don't really make choices Governments don't really make choices, it's individuals, and it may be a set of individuals that are set aside as more powerful, it may be the majority, it may be one isolated person, but at the end of the day, individuals make choices. We make choices, and those choices begin to come together in method and form and conform to one another in the sense in which we then have kind of a group thought, and in our insecurity, we, we kind of always conform. The easiest way to see this, I think, is fashion. All right? Fashion. Let's just talk about fashion for just a minute. There are fashion trends, right? These trends in fashion. 
And something that is really in today, I mean, somebody's going to go pay $100 for that thing, right? If they wait about five years, that's on the clearance rack for like five bucks, right? And we've watched this happen all throughout generations. And here's another thing that we'll notice. Everybody thinks they're cool because they're, they're wearing the in fashion, right? But they're all just wearing the same thing. They're all just conforming to one another. It's all pretty much the same. Now, they're individuals. They can choose what they want to wear, but they all kind of choose the same things. And they do it because they like it, but they've kind of conformed to one another to like the same things. And that's why one generation kind of dresses one way, and another generation kind of dresses another way, and another one, and another one. And let's just be honest, there's no real right or wrong. And the same thing that you think looks good today, the next generation is going to think it looks horrible. And what we're seeing is how our individual choices begin to conform together. Let me, let me give you what that means. It really ends up saying this, that in this worldview, void of a creator, value is completely subjective. Just whatever you choose for it to be. Here's a fun example. I would pay one dollar for a cold diet Dr. Pepper. And if it was a really warm day and I was really stressed out, I might even pay $2. On my best day, I wouldn't give you 10 cents for a cup of coffee. No chance. It's not because I don't like the taste. Who wants to put something boiling hot in their mouth? What's wrong with you people? Now here's what's going to happen. Most of you, that would be opposite. I know this because Starbucks is in business and they'll charge you like five bucks for a cup of coffee. You're like, I'll pay it. I love coffee. Individual choices going back and forth. And it kind of conforms a little bit to the majority of those individual choices. But we even see that in our economy. But it goes further than that. I, I would, I would, you know, I would pay more money to watch a football game than a Marvel movie, right? These simple things, though, when you really think about value in a peer culture, void of a creator, if you take that worldview, they also continue on to deeper things. So, for example, in such a view, Amy and Lena, my wife and my daughter, are more valuable than two strangers. Now, I'm not talking just more valuable to me. Watch. Void of a creator... I am the determiner of the value. I'm saying they are. Now, you may have something different, but that's what begins to happen. And it just keeps going. Even like right now, as, as our country is continuing to go through, think about this one. There is a measure, and it's about value. The value of a woman's freedom and her choice versus the value of an unborn life. And there's a battle going on about which is more valuable. And then it even ranges by circumstance. What, well, what if that baby was just, it wasn't planned, it, was, it wasn't convenient. Well, what, what, if, what if the baby wasn't what the guy wanted to be with? Or what if it wasn't consensual at all? Here's what we're beginning to do, just watch. You're trying to measure the value of the woman's suffering, her choice, her freedom, versus the value of the life of an unborn. This is about value. 
David, however, when he speaks and writes here in Psalm 8, I want to make sure you catch something. David does not ask himself, nor does he ask his peers. David instead says, you who created the heavens. See, David had no illusion of a creation apart from a creator. In his worldview, there is a supreme being, a supreme God who has created all that is, and it is him and him alone who defines value. It is determined by him. It is absolute. In other words, it goes beyond just some social construct in which nothing in and of itself has value, that is just limited to personal choice or sentiment but instead is an absolute declaration of the creator on his creation. And if you're only going to hear one statement, if you're only going to like tweet one thing this morning, let it be this statement, this thought. We do not assign value. We steward it. God assigns value. We steward the value he has assigned. We do not increase it or decrease it by our choice. We do not in any way change what value he has decreed and he has set. He is the creator. And so value is rightly proclaimed according to his choice, not ours. Now that's hard for a room full of selfish people. I'm first class on the plane, I know. But it's hard for us because we want to assign value. We want to determine what is good. And with that in mind, let's jump into our text, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. Our big truth this morning is that we are created in God's image. God made us in his image. We find that right in verse 27. But what does it mean? What, I mean, what does it mean, this Imago Dei, the image of God. What, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? There's a, a Hebrew word here, it's selim. It's used in verse 26 and 27, translated image. It's used throughout the Old Testament and other places as well. Most of the time, it's translated like, uh, like a false image. So we read about idols and idol worship in the Old Testament. Uh, they made a graven image. That's the same word. And we see a little bit more unpacked in chapter 5 of Genesis. That same word gets translated a little different there 
in verse 1 says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. But I think one of the, the more poetic places to kind of get an understanding of what this image is and what it looks like, David writes in Psalm 39. He uses the exact same word. In verse 5, he says, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. It's the same word. Image, shadow, same word. So, this idea that the shadow reflects something greater. But what does all that really mean? And i got to take a minute and chase a rabbit, okay? It'll just take a minute. But there's, there's kind of two ways to get at this. There is a complex, systematic theology that just goes kind of chasing into oblivion, all right? And it's hard, and it's complex, and it, it takes all these different parts of Scripture and tries to kind of put them together and really, as best it can, tries to determine what is meant when Scripture says the image of God. And the problem with the complex view in this and this systematic view is it, there's a lot of things that could be, but Scripture doesn't explicitly say these things. So the complex view kind of wrestles with thoughts around our physical shape or our spiritual being or our, um, our will, our dominion. And see, these things may very well be part, our emotion may very well be part of God-likeness, and I'm sure some of them are, but Scripture doesn't explicitly lay those things out. Instead, what Scripture really does when it talks about the image of God is give us a very simple, broad kind of look at this. I love what one famous theologian wrote. He said, the Bible is not as concerned as we are to discover the precise nature of man's God-likeness. The full meaning of man's God-likeness cannot be determined until all that man and God are is known. Man is man in his wholeness, not his parts, is like God. It is not enough to say he reasons, nor is it enough to say he is addressed. For Satan, too, reasons and is addressed. Our definition of the Imago Dei, or being in the image of God, must be broad. Because the only sure statements we have about the Imago are broad. And so, I told you I need to chase a rabbit. I acknowledge there's a lot of complexities we can chase. But the truth is, Scripture doesn't explicitly go before us in some of those things. There's reasons to think that. There's reasons to chase that. But what I do want you to catch is what Scripture explicitly communicates. And that gives us a much more simple definition, one that you can begin to talk about in your homes this week, with your spouse, with your kids, with your grandkids. That to be in the image of God is a special likeness of God, setting us apart from the rest of creation. 
demonstrating love and revealing a reflection of the Creator. A special likeness of God setting us apart from the rest of creation, demonstrating love, His love, and revealing a reflection of the Creator. Like a shadow proclaims the presence of something greater, as an image bearer, we proclaim the presence of the Creator. Parts of His very attributes and characteristics are in us and displayed through us. It's an important subject. It is crucially important. And it's one of those things that should be taught, and it's one of those things in which we should talk about. And I love this summer series because there's so much resource around you as a family to spur you to conversation, to deeper meditation of God's truth. That it might be um, convicting, encouraging, but in no way just staying at the surface. And so what I'm going to try to do in the next little bit is really set you up to have some of those conversations. And I'm going to leave some questions unanswered. You're going to have to kind of chase those on your own. Um, but I, I want us to begin to just wrestle with what it means, the implications, if you will, we call those big ideas, of being an image bearer. And so the first implication that we see is to our worth, to our worth. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. We have value and worth because God is ultimately valuable. Our value, our worth, cannot exceed Him. We can't add to it, we don't change it, He sets it. I, I think Noah gets at this pretty quick in Genesis chapter 9. Noah is writing in verse 6 and he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So here's what's happening in this. Noah's acknowledging that it's frowned upon to kill someone. <laughs> Shouldn't do it. That's a bad thing. Okay? Why is it a bad thing? What if we disagree? What if they like coffee? Right? For God made man in his own image. That's the reason Noah gives. It, it wasn't about what the man had done. It wasn't his actions or his merits. It wasn't any of this, right? What gave this man value? God created him in his image. And so from the very beginning, this is understood. Value is given by God. It is not a social construct. It is linked to the creator. And so ultimate value is determined by the absolute that is the supreme being, that is the creator, that is God. And that fleshes all the way down into your life and my life. Let me give you an example. My wife is incredibly valuable. But Amy's value is not found in her abilities, her presence, although she is fine, I'm just going <laughs> to... Her actions, her possessions, or her relationship to me. None of those things give her value, give her worth, give her meaning. Her value is found 
in relationship to the Creator. Her value is found in her relationship to Christ and Christ alone. That is a powerful reality. Listen, identity found in anything less than Christ alone, anything less is empty. It's empty. And it will only leave you hungry, unsatisfied, longing for more, in the hamster wheel, chasing more and more value. You cannot find value apart from the Creator, apart from Christ. Identity found in anything less is empty. And can we just be honest? As we live right now, we are in the midst of this massive identity war where everybody wants to divide everything by some type of identity. Can we just acknowledge that the end of that is not value and worth, but is division and selfishness and pride and hate? Can we acknowledge that? I long for my daughter to grow up. Man, and I pray, and Lord, help her. Never seek her identity. Never seek her wealth or her value in being a woman and being white and being an American and being talented and being popular or being wealthy or carrying somebody's last name may she stand confident and secure with her value and her worth in Christ and in Christ alone see that's something that will get her through the day that's something she can live on. That's something that can fulfill her and not leave her dissatisfied. But she lives in such a broken world that will measure her on how she looks. That will try to over-sexualize everything in her context that will try to make it about what she can accomplish or what she can think or what she can do. And the church, you and I, are caught up in this world. And our hypocrisy in pursuit is a snare to the next generation and to ourselves. Now listen, I want to give you some examples. And as I do, I just I need you to understand, I'm not being legalistic. The, the examples I'm choosing aren't rights and wrongs. The examples I'm choosing are about pursuit. They're about pursuit. You can do any one of these and just be fine and be wise and do well. But I want to try to expose to you how we, we as the church, have gotten distracted and buy in and chase and pursue value in things that are just meaningless. And how it becomes a stumbling block for ourselves and how we view ourselves. And not only that, for how our kids grow up and what they see in the church. Did you know that today's adolescence, by every measurable we know, is the most depressed, insecure in history? They are stuck in a value mirror maze 
unable to distinguish authentic value from an illusion. The mental health epidemic, the ego that is broken and battered is all around us. And it is because we continue to work and to strive and to seek identity in things that are just meaningless. Even as we sit here, some of you haven't been able to make it through one service without checking in on Snap or Instagram or doing something or texting somebody. Listen, I'm not judging you. I'm one of you, okay? Not that. I'm just trying to point out to you and to me our propensity to be distracted and to chase completely meaningless things. Even when we gather to worship the one true God that many of you would proclaim to give life to your very spirit, to have meaning and depth. It's hard for you just to focus for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. If Paul's preaching an hour, right, it's hard. (laughs) He'll get me for that. Our pursuits are messed up. Did you know, uh, this is an example, did you know that the U.S. is the most valuable cosmetic market in the entire world by far? By far. In the U.S., we spend over 90 billion, billion dollars a year on things that make us look better, on our appearance. All outward, 90 billion dollars a year. The average woman in America spends $313 per month on her appearance. Think about that. That's mostly face and hair. I don't know. I read through the statistics. I got got bored. But it's lotions and creams. and There were all kinds of words I'd never heard of in my life. All right? I'm just going to own it. All kinds of stuff. They'll spend just under a quarter of a million dollars in their lifetime on their appearance. They'll spend 55 minutes per day in the morning putting stuff on, in the evening taking stuff off and keeping stuff going all throughout the day, right? 55 minutes. Listen, I'm telling you, I promise, there's not a legalistic judgment in it. If it's fun and you're having fun and it's great, go for it. So why am I picking on this example? It's because I'm rocking that dad life right now. And I've got an 18-year-old that's growing up and soon to be a 13 or 14-year-old. And when she's eight, it's easy for me to just say, sweetie, what really matters is your abiding relationship with Christ. That's where real value and real worth is. And all the other stuff, man, there's fun and there's blessings and the Lord's giving you all that and it's all around you and that's good. But what really matters is what's on the inside. And she's eight, so she'll believe me. But soon she's going to be 13. And you know what she's going to look around? She's going to look around in the church. She's going to look around at mom and dad. And she's going to begin to assess what we value, what we spend our time doing, what we spend our money on. And she's going to hurt us again and again, say things like, I don't really have time to study God's word. But she'll watch us spend an hour every day playing with our makeup, chasing our hobbies, doing our stuff. She's going to hear us talk about beauty's really on the inside. What really matters is there. But she's going to watch us in fear if we were to ever leave the house without our makeup on. By all means, enjoy it. Have fun. Do it. 
but don't make it something that is a need that you have to have. Because I long for my daughter to grow up with some biblical examples who would adorn themselves on the inside, who would champion something greater than what the world has, than to just kind of merge it and mix it all together. And that doesn't have to be frumpy, and it doesn't have to be that, it just, but it will be countercultural. You know that, right? There will be suffering in it. Because the world says there's no value in that. There are so many things like this. Some of you in here, you're getting older, and you can't do what you used to do. You can't lift what you used to lift. You can't pace like you used to pace. And you, through most of your life, took such pride and value in what you could do. And now, you can't do as much. And yes, I get the morning of it. I do. But man, you get to come to church and you get to be around the generations under you. And your grandkids can see you mope and they can see you depressed and they can see you down because you place so much value in your ability to do. Where they can see you even in your loss, raise your hand and proclaim the goodness of God that he has gifted you a life that would see you get so old. That you would realize and give praise that your identity and your value and your worth is in nothing that you do. Not then, not now. But your identity is in Christ alone. And this is your hook. This is the thing I would challenge you to talk about this week in your homes. Talk about it with your family. Talk about finding value in Christ alone in your old age. Talk about finding value in Christ alone when you're insecure. Talk about finding value in Christ alone in your suffering when you lose the job. When ends don't meet. When it's hard. Talk about finding value in Christ alone in your weakness. When you have a bad word day in front of like, you know, a hundred people. Talk about those things. And remind yourself, and remind your kids, and remind your grandkids, and remind your spouse that your value and your worth is not in those things, but in Christ, in Christ alone. There are implications to our relationships. Our second big idea, we're going to go through these next two, I'm just going to introduce them for you, basically. We long for companionship because God is a communal being. If value is absolute and is defined by the creator, here's what this means. The person I deem most valuable is just as valuable as the person I deem least valuable. Because I do not determine their value. That should change the way we interact with one another. There are implications to our destiny, our purpose. Our third big idea, we have purpose because we were created to reflect God to the world. Your life has meaning. Your life has meaning. 
Your meaning is found in who you are created to be. You are valuable because the creator is valuable. Listen, if you are a child of God who has been redeemed through saving faith, let me make sure you get something. It does not matter what you do. You stand before God, a joint heir with Jesus because of who he is and who he's declared you to be. It doesn't matter, watch this, it doesn't matter if your mind fails and you can't remember anything. It doesn't matter if you age and you can't do like you used to do. It doesn't matter if you're in some awful accident and you just look all messed up. Your value and your worth does not change because your value and your worth, all of it, 100% is not in your merit, but is in Jesus and Jesus alone. It is in the supreme creator, all of it. Man, we should live so different because I know none of us have any self-esteem problems. None of us, right? None of us struggle with insecurity. And this battle that we fight, we must understand it is a truth battle. We must be transformed by the renewing of our mind around the truth of who God says we are, not the world around us. We should live differently. I'm going to ask the team to come on up, and as they do, I want to kind of get at one more question. One more question. If we are valuable, why do we need Jesus? It's a fair question. If we are valuable, if we were created in the image of God and he gave us value, why do we need Jesus because we chose sin because we chose to exchange the value given to us for the illusion of worth and value found in ourselves apart from the creator it's called the fall and as we walk through the summer, we're going to take some time, we're going to talk about that. But let me give you a picture from Scripture. We traded worth and value for meaninglessness. Any of you guys remember Jacob and Esau? Remember Jacob and Esau? Esau's a great picture of that. Esau is the firstborn. Now watch, watch what happens. He is to be the primary carrier, the primary heir of the promise that went all the way back to Abraham, that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. We're talking about God's chosen people. And it's his birthright. You know what he did with it? He traded it for a bowl of stew. A bowl of stew. That's what we've done in our sin. We were created and given value and purpose and meaning in the Creator. And we traded it for nothing. For nothing. And yet, and yet, in our brokenness, in our sin, in our rejection of who God is, and the value and the worth that is in Him, He loved us. He loved us. And he sent his only son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life and paid the penalty of our sin 
in death on a cross. So that through faith, not in merit, but through faith in Him, we might be restored. We might be given value and worth. That we might be redeemed in Him. And we talked about that in Romans. Because now, through faith in Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God. We stand with the value and the worth of joint heirs with Jesus. We, we needed Jesus. We traded our value and our worth, what God had created us to be, our purpose. We traded it for nothing. And God gave everything to restore it. I pray this morning, if you're here and there's never been a point in time in your life where you've cried out to Jesus in saving faith, that this morning would be the morning you do. So what's that mean? What's that look like? Here's a good meaning for you this morning of saving faith. To deny the illusion of value and worth in yourself and to turn to Jesus, the very Son of God, and proclaim all value and all worth is in you. That you would die to yourself and identify with Jesus and rest in Him. Rest in Him. And for those of you who have done that, as we sing this song, I want it to be a song of worship. Not just a song you sing as you get ready to leave, but truly a song of your heart to acknowledge who you are in Christ. And again, if, if you need to talk to somebody through that, right out these doors to your left, there's an area called the hub. Go out there, talk to somebody. They're, they're there. They'll walk through this with you. But for the church, may you sing these words and may they be your prayer this morning. I want to read you some of them before we sing them. Let them sink in. As summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry by. So I will not boast in wealth or might or human wisdom's fleeting light, but I will boast in knowing Christ. Two wonders here that I confess. This is my prayer for you. My worth redeemed joint heirs with Christ and my unworthiness not of any merit whatsoever but by faith alone through Christ alone. Two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness my value fixed my ransom paid because Jesus took the cross for you. Would you stand and would you sing? Would you worship in a time of response?